Welcome to the Temple of Bleh, episode J. I've once again resigned to editing in the middle of the night, so I'm a little bit softly spoken at the minute. Uh, this entry into the history of Roadrunner Records is with Howie Abrams, author, A&R executive, and general nice dude. I actually had this one sat on the shelf for a while. We had this conversation just over a month ago, but because we go so far down so many different rabbit holes, I assumed there'd be a lot more editing to do. However, it, having just listened back to it all, it turns out that Howie Abrams is just super articulate and has a really amazing memory and is a super smart guy, so it all flows really well. I thought I'd have to snip a lot more out than I did. This one's got it all, man. It's got uh, typo negative, visions of disorder... Uh, generally just all the cool shit that Howie's got up to, including a short soccer conversation uh, as we as we both celebrate the up-and-coming Leeds United to the Premier League. It's a two-hour, it's a beast, it's a two-hour one, but it's a really good one, so get stuck in, everyone. One, two, fuck shit up! So I'm going to crack on with it. Yeah, so... Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, in fact, I've got two things to thank you for. Uh, in my doing all the, the research for this stuff and, and looking into yourself, um, you did two things which indirectly, indirectly um, uh, affected very formative things in my life. So the first thing you did ah. was you signed Bowling for Soup. Ah, there you go. Yeah. So they're the reason I picked up a base. That's uh, there you go. And then what's funny is, I mean, I left Roadrunner. And I wouldn't say they were the first band that I signed afterward, but they were one of the first for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What was it? Jive Records? Yeah. So I worked at the company was called Zamba. And right. uh, so that's the, the overall company and, and was formed in the UK, actually. Oh. Um, but, uh, you know, Jive was the record, the main record label. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had Silvertone, which was originally started so that they could st- sign the Stone Roses, you know, oh. and then and uh, and, you know, there was other branches of the tree companies to Zamba. But, you know, I worked for Zamba and, mm. you know, as a result, I also worked for Jive and that was the one and only band I signed to Jive. But there were, you know, virtually no rock bands on Jive throughout mm. its entire time. Um, to the point where when they went after the Stone Roses, they started an entire other label for the A&R guy. What year was it? When did Stone Roses had the two albums in this time, didn't they, before they come, came out together? So the second coming was ninety five. Yeah, just about. That's yeah. So they must have been lifting quite a lot of, lifting a lot of weight to make that happen for a band that at this time hadn't put much out. Well, yeah, I mean, the first, the first record, I guess it was a crazy bidding war. You know, everybody wanted the Stone Roses. Sure. Um, the Manchester and Manchester stuff was just, yeah. you know, what everybody wanted. And so, you know, they were like the ones, you know, everybody wanted that band. Mm. And so, you know, basically they got signed and the guy who brought them to the company, um, you know, wasn't sure that the imprints that the company had were right for them. So they started a label called Silvertone and um, that was it. And then they only did the one album for Jive and then, you know, there were lawsuits and all kinds of crazy shit went on. And then, um, you know, they wound up, what was the second album on Geffen or something? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was on a different point. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, I mean, obviously they were monsters. Yep. Still out. They're still selling out arenas. 
Yeah, I forgot that they sort of came back and everything, you know? Yeah, sober stone roses. Yeah, right? As Weird. Is, yeah. <laughs> does, does that, is that allowed? <laughs> I don't know. I can't say I've seen them. I can't yeah, even I say I've, I've heard them. the new I've album. I've never seen them. I would totally go see them. I don't remember if they got to play the States or if it was canceled or what happened. But um, I remember there were, they had, there were dates talked about for the U.S., but I don't know if they ever happened. Mm. Yeah. But I'm I know sure. they did some of the festivals over there and whatnot, but I don't, I don't remember, you know, if there were actual American shows or not. Mm. Mm. You got me, you got me thinking now. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm not sure. We, we digress. Uh, the, the second thing I've got to thank you for, though, um, is my side gig is um, I'm a live sound engineer <clears throat> when I can find the time and when there's not a pandemic on. Uh, but the guy yeah. who taught me how to do that, the guy who sat me down in front of a monitor desk and said, right, this is how you mix a band, um, was the front of house guy for Sick of It All. Ah, right on. Or at least he was, I think, in Europe in the early 2010s, I think. I yeah, don't know how I, think they, I think they've had a few, but, uh, but they try to stick to the same people. Um, and the bottom line is if, if they hired him, he had to be good because yeah. – they they take a lot of pride in uh, in their live presentation, especially the audio end of it. So um, so that had to be a good experience. Yeah, and again, it's two threads there that led us straight here. <laughs> right, right, right. So thank very you very much for that. Too. No yeah. problem, no problem. My my pleasure. So the the project I'm working on at the minute is I've got this podcast called The Temple of Blair. Blair because. We, me and my co-host Raw, we like blares in songs. You know, like before a solo or a breakdown, when yeah. the vocalist goes, don't. <laughs> we, we fucking love that stuff. Right. So we thought we'd build a temple for it. So as, as that is a platform, um, I've always wanted to try and tell, or at least have a go at telling the story of Roadrunner Records, because no one really has. There's the liner notes to Roadrunner United and the three decades of Roadrunner and things like that, but there's never been a concise narrative yeah. So I'm hoping to take that mantle on and tell the story the best as best I can, really. Um, so I'm reaching out and trying to get people to help me connect those dots. Um, and I'm hoping you can help me with that. Yeah, I'll so, do my best. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So yeah. let's start from roughly the start. You are in In Effect. Yeah. Are you working for? You're, you're a founder of In Effect, which came about because you effectively complained to the president of important records that they were so worried about about metal bands on combat records they're missing the point with the emerging new york hardcore scene how wrong am i no it's pretty close i mean Mm. it's it's interesting because it was a little it was even more broad than that because you know obviously roadrunner had a great reputation working with metal bands especially you know aggressive underground bands um you know and um, you know, then there was combat, right? You had metal blade, you had all those bands, right. Mm-hmm. And all those labels. And so combat similar to Roadrunner, um, you know, had the success with aggressive metal, a little broader than Roadrunner. So you had, you know, uh, you had your death and your dark angel and that kind of stuff. But then yeah, later yeah. you had, you know, forbidden and you had, you know, um, you know, cyclone temple even, and things like that. Right. So, you know, so combat, that was kind of the zone that they were in for a while. Mm. And but even prior to that, or just earlier than that, alongside combat, they started a sub label at one point called Combat Core. And, okay. you know, so 
basically uh, that was the label that for a little while had like Agnostic Front and the Crumb Suckers right. and Ludacrist and uh, Circle Jerks. They released an Exploited record, a GBH record. Um, I forgot if the Accused was on there, mm. um, but the, you know there were a bunch, right? So for a minute, they did dedicate a little something to the hardcore bands, right? Yeah. And but that kind of didn't last very long and went away quickly. And then you were back to just sort of it being a metal label with a couple of hardcore bands sprinkled in. Mm -hmm. And so Agnostic Front was there, Ludacris was there. Um, I'm trying to think. The Crumb Suckers may have been done by then. I think the first two albums were out, you know, and they weren't really doing much. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, basically at one point starting around 87-ish um, with Agnostic Front when Liberty and Justice came out, um, you saw that they just weren't really getting the attention over there that they probably should have. Mm. Um, yet at the same time, you know, every metal magazine, you know, the Kerrangs of fucking America, you know, had, you know, full page death and dark angel tour ads and right, like yeah, all yeah. this shit. And you're just like, what the fuck are they doing? Like what a waste <laughs> of money. Like they don't sell any more records than agnostic front, you know? Yep. And, but they're paying so much attention to them. It's almost insulting, you know? Mm. Uh, so, you know, at the time for important and I saw what would sell and what wasn't really selling, you know? And I felt mm. like they were forcing some of these metal bands down retail's throat. Whereas the retailers were asking for agnostic front records, you know, a bit and of so, diversity. Yeah, yeah. It just didn't make it, but the balance didn't make any sense. Like they sort of, clearly cared about one thing and were neglecting the other. Yeah. And so I didn't really understand it. And I just started complaining, you know, to the head <laughs> of important at the time, like, what is going on here? Like, am I missing something, you know? Yeah. And so the conversation started to expand into, you know, why don't we try to do something a little bit more special, you know, for these types of bands, you know, being that I come from that world and, now I've got some sales experience under me and I really feel like I know what to do with them. So that's how we started in effect. It was basically me being a pain in the ass and complaining. <laughs> so it, the logistics of starting a new imprint with you at the helm, is that just simply a matter of going down to the US equivalent of where you'd register companies and say, okay, we're a subsidiary of important. Yeah. I mean, they, they kind of, they kind of, the company was already very, established you know so you had yeah. important records and you had combat and relativity records and mm -hmm. you know they had joe satriani and steve Vai and you know all these artists that sold lots of records i mean they actually you know the company every year probably sold a few million records yeah. uh, between everything and so they did all the back office stuff you know so we just sort of said look i think that we need to create something like this Mm. And, you know, they knew what to do as far as the business end of it. I mean, I was, you know, I was a teenager, so I sure as hell didn't know. Um, <laughs> and so but they kind of handled all that stuff. And then, you know, we we created we came up with a name and then we came up with a logo and ultimately uh, brought on Steve Martin, who was um, in Agnostic Front at the time. But he was mm. a journalist. And so he kind of handled the PR end of the company. And, you know, we put our heads together 
on most everything else. So in terms of bringing bands in and helping how to market them and doing those types of things. And again, he was in Agnostic Front, yeah. which was the, the band that we, you know, we basically intended to build the label around in the first place. It's interesting now because I don't think you'd see that much of, I, I guess it's kind of a low risk move from the business side just to okay we've got this kid who knows the scene really well can we put some of the business might behind him yeah no problem i don't think we'd see that today um i think it would certainly be tougher i think you know businesses in general and i'm talking pre-covid you mm. know we're just had turned into much more conservative operations you know so at that time you know indie music was just its own animal like and all those independent labels were started by fans of the music, you know? Um, So, you know, even going to creation, we were talking about like, you know, Manchester and shit like that before. It's like, you know, he was just a a fan, you know, and Mm -hmm. he was somebody in the mix with the music and the artists and the the DJs and all that stuff. And it, you know, he was the right guy. Mm -hmm. So I think it was just sort of the right place, right time with the right people. And, you know, we had the ear, of the company and that was um you know that was really fortunate for us but yeah i'm not sure that that would happen quite the same way today what was the what were your restrictions in being because you, you were probably wearing many hats as the founder in in effect you're probably doing some of the the, the publicity side so doing the a and r side what were the restrictions that were placed upon you in terms of approaching a band did they give you a set budget did they give you well yeah i mean we kind of we kind of had an idea of what we would spend to try to sign a band and make a record. Um, Mm. You know, we, we had to kind of say, all right, you know, maybe in the first year we'll try to sign three, four bands, you know, and here's the, here's the the dollar range, you know, Um, we're not ever going to spend more than this. Um, And, you know, let's assume that we're going to have to spend at least this, you know, Mm -hmm. each band. So we kind of had a bit of a minimum and a maximum of what we expected to spend and let's say the first year, 18 months, you know, on a case by case basis. Yeah, more or less. Um, but, you know, again, like everybody's everybody's ceiling was the same, you know. So, yeah. you know, but what was interesting is we also sort of knew that the bands that we were going to go after, it's not like there was tons of competition at the time. The competition probably couldn't even spend what we were willing to spend and we were not spending very much, you know. Yeah. Um, but we were also, we listen, we were cocky, forget confident. We were very, you know, uh, obnoxious in our confidence that we could sign whoever we wanted, you know? And, you know, when it got to 24 seven spies, for instance, um, that's when that was our first time where like there were other labels interested at the same time. Right. And we had to compete with that. So you couldn't, you know, just sort of offer them, the low end of what we were okay with. You had to sort of start at the high end. Um, yeah. And so that was interesting because, you know, that was something that, um, you know, that we weren't used to. And so what's funny is that the main competitor for them was profile records, which was, you know, run DMC's label and mostly a hip hop uh, label. Um, but so okay. what's funny is when we signed 24 seven spies, they came into the office and we got, and we served it on a profile 12 inch <laughs> because we were just dicks like that. <laughs> so that that's kind of the attitude we had, you know, 
um, like, and, and, you know, to win, win something like that was big. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of, it's a good segue into the next question, actually, because, um, in, in doing the roadrunner stuff, I, I did a bit of a piece, a side piece on Hawker records. Uh, yeah. Um, is it true that you had to outbid John Bello for sick of it all? No. And he was one of the interested parties. No, he may have been, but, uh, it never came to my, he was in the mix with them at all. I feel like <sighs> we kind of approached them and between me knowing them and Steve knowing them, um, we just, we were able to work with them and that's it because it right, felt okay. like, it felt like, you know, it was like friends getting together to, to work with friends. Yeah. Yeah. So Chinese I, know, I know he was interested John Bello, but I don't think mm. he was. I don't think he was really ever competition for that band. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I know this is a complete aside, uh, but Combat Records. Yeah. Um, did I just noticed that I think the logo for Combat Records is just ripped off Combat Rock by The Clash. So if, if, I'm, I'm trying to. Well, I mean, obviously, it was just kind of like this military font. Yeah. Right? Like, like this yellow yellow combat font over green most of the time yeah but then i guess on the albums it was over black um you know so i never associated it with that at all but i guess you probably could like i don't know who came up with it ultimately mm. so who knows what they were thinking or what they were listening to that day right oh god yeah i just, <laughs> just want to admit is there a chance that harry Evans might know that it's it was it looks like it was copy and pasted having said that there probably wasn't a lot of uh, fonts available at the time so yeah i think it was just sort of a very like like we're called combat it should look like the military you know yeah yeah <laughs> so uh moving swiftly on uh how did you end up joining roadrunner and uh, what was uh how did case entice you in yeah so um you know, towards the end of the in effect days, Sony had purchased the entire company. Mm. Um, so they purchased important and all the labels, so relativity, everything. At the end of the day, they basically dropped most of the bands and they fired a lot of the staff. Right. Um, so that was the end of me. Right. But but, you know, we had a really good reputation. We had done really good things. And so, you know, I sort of sat around for a little bit, took a little break. Um, and then if I recall correctly, I got a call from Monty, Monty reached out to me somehow, Monty Connor, right. um, and said, Hey, you know, case would like to talk to you about maybe bringing you on here. Mm -hmm. So I said, sure, be more than happy to talk to him. So we spoke and his general idea was, I'd like you to come over here and do something very similar to what you did with an effect. Okay. And I said, that's great. And I said, but I'll tell you one thing. I'm not sure it should be a separate label. I think mm -hmm. we should actually do whatever you want me to do. It should be on Roadrunner proper. Right. Um, yeah. Because I really do think that you have this sort of brand going. I'm sure I didn't say brand at the time, but, you know, you have this this thing that people know about. It's aggressive music. Yeah. Um, and I don't think what I want to sign here is going to be so far into what you're already doing. You know, um, mm -hmm. it's just going to be different. And so he I think he appreciated that because I don't think he was expecting me to say that. Mm. Um, and I'm sort of shocked. My ego allowed me to say that. But, <laughs> um, but you know, so we you know, we came to an agreement and um, I said I would come on for sure. And then what he told me was that 
in addition to doing A&R, he also wanted me to be a product manager and work with some of their existing artists, um, right. you know, doing marketing and stuff. So I said, cool, you know, because at the end of the day, with an effect, as you said, you wore so many hats that you were doing that anyway, you know. So I knew, <clears throat> excuse me, that I would be the product manager for the bands that I signed. But he also wanted me to do some of the bands that I wasn't the A&R person for. So, you know, I wound up doing um, Biohazard. I wound up doing Typo. Right. I wound up doing Sepultura for a while. Um, I was doing Frontline Assembly um, and some of the, you know, um, other industrial groups that were on the label. So Trepan and Pal and, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> it's worth mentioning to, to, to try and get a feel for what Rodman was doing. I've been going on Discogs and I've been trying to find every every release they've done, but trying to identify which were the signed bands and not just a distribution or a, a license. Yeah, well, act. you had the third mind thing, right? So I brought yeah. in those, these other groups and you had, you know, like what, the moon seven times and things like that. And I'm like, why is yep. this here? You know, like, don't you get, <laughs> Like, not that it's bad or good. It's just, don't you get to select which bands that we release? Like, what does this have to do with what you're set up to be able to promote and market? I don't understand, you know? Yeah. So, and, and, you know, and then you just got grief from the people involved with them because yep. it was just a miserable failure. And you're just like, well, I, I don't know what anybody expected here with that, yeah. you know? It's, um, it is interesting because as I've been reading into this, the dynamic between band and label and the relationship between the two, and because there's always quite a lot of horror stories of how labels treat bands, and now I'm completely sympathetic towards the labels. Yeah, right. I right. completely well, get it. it. It's both, though, because, you know, listen, every band likes to complain later when things don't go their way. Yeah. So, you know, when you sign to the label, everything's fucking amazing. You know, you just, you got maybe a little bit of money, you're going to make a record, you're on a label, you know, like people are paying attention to you and kissing you your ass and, you know, you're living the dream. And, and yeah. so, so all, everything is fantastic. And then suddenly, you know, there's an issue, like the album cover is too offensive or this or that. And like, you know, you have to fight, you know, and then you find out like what you're up against. So the yeah. label finds out what they're up against and the band finds out <laughs> what they're up against. And usually the band doesn't win. <laughs> yeah. So, and it could leave a bad taste. And especially if something like that happens early um, in the your, process. What's your favorite example of that? Well, I mean, you know, typo negative was a very interesting one um, <laughs> because, you know, they had a very, very specific view of how things are supposed to go yeah, of yeah. how the record's going to sound what the packaging's going to be you know all this stuff so the one example that i can tell you that i thought was a very big deal um i was the product manager during bloody, bloody kisses and you know they made the album and we heard the album we were like jesus like eight aside from how different it is for them how fucking great it was you know and just you know, we thought that they really made something incredibly special, you know, especially for Roadrunner. Um, so basically they brought in what they wanted as the album cover, which was this like green, these green lips, basically, mm -hmm. which wound up on the CD itself okay. um, of the album. So it was just like this green kiss mark, you know, yeah. and, and I looked at it and you know, I, I turned to Monty and I was like, because he was the A&R guy. I'm like, this is the album cover for this record. 
Like <laughs> they just turned in this fucking masterpiece and this is the album cover. And so Monty reluctantly agreed because he was used to having arguments with them, you know, yeah, that the band would almost always win, you know, but yeah. this was a big one because, you know, no matter what anybody wants to say, an album cover is a marketing tool. That's what it is, you know, yep. and that's the image you're going to see in the advertising advertisements, you know, everything, everything you see is going to be the cover. And I'm yeah. like, this is lame. Like, this is just not up to the standard. Plus, it's, it's post-Black album. album. It's already been done. Minimalism. Right. Well, well, yeah, by, by Spinal Tap and by Metallica. But, yeah. but, you know, it's like, it just it just was a big nothing, you know? Yeah. It was like a cute little image, but it was not an album cover. So <laughs> we went back to the band. And, you know, naturally, they're like, well, okay, we think you're wrong. But what do you suggest? Yeah. And I forgot who came up with the idea of the photo shoot with the two women, you know, yeah. um, I don't remember whose idea it was. I think the idea multi mostly was that they knew the photographer, you know, okay. so they said, we'll trust him to do some kind of shoot. And we're like, OK. And I believe one of the girls on the cover is his wife or girlfriend. Right. Yeah. The photographer. So that's where that shoot came from. And we wound up with what became the cover out of that shoot. And which is so, interesting because it's loads more, it's far more contentious. <laughs> it's far yeah, more dangerous but, in a way. But, but that's okay. Like it's, yeah. this is a label that was used to putting like severed bloody fucking heads on their, you know, covers. Right. So it's like, Oh, who are you referring to there? That is, well, I don't even think Brujeria was out yet. But that's like, it. Yeah. Brujeria. But, 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 but uh, I think that even came later, but, but still like, even even in a an illustration form, you know, death metal was just, you know, between like the obituary covers and deicide covers and fucking suffocation and like all yeah, that yeah. shit. Like this was nothing, you know, and, you know, that the old sex sells. Right. Like, you yep. you know, if you totally. if you if you chop off a pair of tits, it's fucking OK. But like if you're like caressing them, it's a nightmare. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, but somehow. That's what people want, and Ooh. it sells, and it Bruger, works. Uh, Brew Hiria came out uh, just over five weeks prior to Bloody Kisses. Oh, so so it was roughly the same time. So you probably weren't feeling too shy about it. No, <laughs> I think I think at that point, you know, we were we were okay, and and I don't yeah. think anybody saw any anything particularly risque with the cover, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's where that came from, and that was like. You know, that was one of those instances where, you know, the band thought we were totally out of our minds wrong. Yep. yep. And and I absolutely backed that decision till the day I die. That's great. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it was a much better option. Um, moving back to my next question, which is actually quite a good segue. Where's the line drawn then between A&R and marketing? Because I think with A&R, you've got to be the band's best friend and daddy and you've got to be the flag bearer. Yeah. Which I imagine involves quite a lot of marketing decisions. Yes. And at the and same time, the marketing person, I imagine, is probably in the same vein, yeah. but is flying the flag for the label as a business as opposed to the band as a product, I guess. Yeah, well, luckily, early on, the company was still small enough that it was kind of all hands on deck, right? So as the A&R person, I was also the marketing person in terms of steering the other departments. Right. Um, so it wasn't like, Roadrunner at that time, you know, 93, 94 
had such a sophisticated marketing department in America mm-hmm. where you were kind of handing the record off and being like, here, now do your job. You know, there was no expert per se. There was right. a head of marketing, but there was nobody who had like some amazing handle on like what to do with, you know, metal or hardcore bands other than like the very fundamental sales stuff and the things you did with retail, you know? Yeah, past um, reading Kerrang and putting some posters up, there's nothing special happening. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, especially like right in the UK, you basically, you know, you ran some ads in Kerrang, you sent out advances to Kerrang and Metal Hammer and Metal Forces and, yeah. you know, whoever else. And, you know, there, there weren't the blogs at the time. You know, you did cover the fanzines, which were essentially the blogs of the time. Yep. And, you know, what was great about, you know, and that's another thing is that Roadrunner, the way things were done on your side of the Atlantic were very different than the way they were done on our side of the Atlantic. Mm. Um, because we had offices in all of the territories, you know, in the UK and on the continent over there. Yeah. And, you know, bands who were putting out their debut albums would go over and do like press runs, you know, over there. And of you course, know, right. You know, yeah. they'd go and sit in the London office and, you know, do do press and do video interviews and talk to Kerrang and yeah. do all that stuff and then go to Germany and then go to Holland and, you know, and, and do the same. And it was, you know, far more sophisticated than it was here, which was just, you know, we packaged it up. We made the records. You know, we had our own marketing plan for America. So over there, I felt far more trustworthy of everybody mm. in terms of handing over. Here are the materials. Go, you know, because, you know, marketing in America is near impossible because it's fucking huge. Yep. As every band found out every band from overseas found out when they came here to tour for the first time you know how long it takes to get from new york to california (laughs) you know if you tour the uk you know um you can do that relatively quickly and you can do press in the uk where you can reach the entire country very quickly Mm. um it's very different because of the bbc and you had weekly music media and all the stuff you know over here it took forever like mm. you'd be lucky if you can saturate New York in that time. You, you know, know, it kind of makes sense against something I was I was reading. So when Roadrunner first opened up in '86 in the U.S., um, Holly Lane, um, who I'll ask a question about later because I yeah. think she's she's an unsung hero in this story. Uh, I um, loved Holly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they created the three imprints, which was Road Racer, obviously for legal reasons. Um, <clears throat> Hawker, as we previously mentioned, and Emergo or Emergo, I don't know. Emergo, how to pronounce yeah. It. yeah, Emergo. Emergo. Um, Which I still don't know what the fuck that is. It seems that, to that be that was indie. the al- the quote unquote alternative label. Yeah, yeah, quote unquote alternative, and there seems to be some alternative stuff happening in the mid. Anyway, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but as part of that massive push into the US, Holly also set up the distribution deal with um, Important. Yes, that's right. So it's kind of cited as one of the main reasons that Hawker fell over um, because. Who's gonna? Who are you gonna push? Sick of it all. Who are on important or token entry? Who are on Hawker? Right. Which, which, which. Well, that was the thing. Is it just that, you know, I just feel that within effect at the time, we, we just had big lofty goals. You know, like mm. we wanted these bands to become bigger bands. We were very yeah. uh, discerning with the bands that we signed, 
And we put a lot, a lot of effort into each one. And I feel like, and again, I can't speak for John Bellow or what they were doing over there sure. at the time. I felt that they were, you know, handicapped by budget. I feel like they just did what I think you're supposed to do, you know, and then let it ride, you know? So I don't think they said, we think token entry is going to be fucking huge and groundbreaking in this genre, you know, mm -hmm. which is what we thought of sick of it all, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so our efforts, you know, mirrored that thought, you know, that we went there, we went really hard for them and, you know, the getting them on tour with bigger bands and all that stuff. Like I didn't see Hawker doing those types of things. I felt like yeah. they were just a hardcore label that was cool, but like there was no, big there was no big plan there you know the biggest thing was the cbgb's show yeah well that was it a great a great event and when you put the bands together that were on that it all made sense you yeah. know um yeah. it was a great package um but i don't think that there was the most focused effort for each band coming out of hawker Am I right in understanding that Important Records were actually a distribution company with yes. label offsets, which, again, it, it just completely stacks up that Rudder has come to the U.S. We have no distribution or marketing model. Let's borrow from an established <clears throat> an established uh, business. And then you were obviously brought in in, in a marketing capacity to try and innovate on Rudder in his own terms. That seems, yeah, to, that seems to be the story I'm, I'm seeing in my head. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, again, listen, Roadrunner was doing quite well before I got there, but yeah. in one, one genre of music, you know, um, and, you know, not even just one genre of music, but a subgenre of music, you know, so mm -hmm. it was mostly death metal. It was a death metal label. Especially and, at the time you arrived, man, that's, that's when the Florida death metal with Scott Burns reign was happening. It was absolutely it's... happening. And then Sepultura was starting to separate themselves. Yeah. Um, so obituary a little bit, but Sepultura had become the premier band on the label. They totally. were the ones who, who they were like after Slayer, they were the next one. You know, you saw it beginning to happen, um, that they were the next extreme metal mm. band that was gaining a really big following. King um, Diamond's just about well. gone at this point. Yeah, King Diamond was like kind of inactive, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, you never knew when there was going to be a new record from the King, you know, like he mm. just kind of, I think sat around until he felt like doing it. And that was it. Whereas he's inspired Sepul by a hammer horror film or something. Yeah. Right. Right. So like Sepultura was building and building and building and on like a two year cycle of doing albums and touring and, yeah. and doing all that. And, and, you know, they were getting quite big. So Sepultura, a lot of the hardcore bands really liked Sepultura in the same way that they liked Slayer, you know? Mm -hmm. And so and Obituary, too. Obituary is a big favorite with the hardcore bands because, you know, like their slower stuff sounded like Celtic Frost, you know. So, yeah, totally. It just, it just kind of had that um, that vibe about it. And those two bands, you know, were big favorites with, you know, the Mad Balls of the world and the, the Sick of It Alls of the mm -hmm. world. That, those were the metal bands that they would listen to. Yeah. Um, the, new, the newer ones that they would listen to anyway. And, you know, so there was like some admiration going back and forth between those scenes at the time. Mm. So as you saw later, all those bands toured together, you know, um, agnostic front and obituary went out on tour together and sure. things like that were happening, Sepultura and sick of it all. So, um, you know, there was, it, it all started to make sense. Like that stuff was starting to, you know, merge with one another, you know? Yeah. 
In um, as I mentioned uh, with in effect, in terms of the NR restrictions you might have had, the, the famous thing I keep seeing reoccurring is the standard approach for Case and Monty was if you're going to sign to Roadrunner, it's going to be five thousand dollars for your debut, and you're going to get a six to seven album deal. Roadrunner keeps all the IP. Yeah. First kind <laughs> of three sixty deal. Is that about right? Or is there any details that are probably oh, noteworthy? Oh, there's no about right. That was right. The, the only the only the only thing that was different um, was that you know the the advances varied so they weren't necessarily okay. five grand may have been the beginning of the label you know mm-hmm. um, but you know we did a little better than that later on but the three sixty before it was a three sixty was the bane of my existence I mean that was the fucking worst thing that I had to convince a band to do and then. Yep. The other thing being that they would try to cross collateralize the entire thing so that like if you were in the black on the record side, you could wind up in the red because you owed money back on merchandise or public. Oh no. You know, so they did that shit for a while. And yeah. then I was horribly opposed to that. And then, you know, they tried to get those other income streams without paying in advance for them. So they would be like, okay, well, we'll give you, you know, 15 grand for your record, but we're not going to pay any additional for the publishing and merchandising. So, well, the tour support was always, you know, recoupable or half recoupable anyway. So that was just kind of a standard, you know, operating practice. But, but the, you know, all that stuff, the 360 thing was fine when there was no competition, you know, for the bands. Mm -hmm. But once there was competition for the bands, which by the time I entered the mix, you know, it seemed like every band Monty tried to sign, somebody else wanted to sign also. And in some cases, even major labels. Right. So already you can't compete with the dollars. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to ask them for publishing and merchandising that you're not going to pay for. Like, if all things are equal, why would you ever sign a band again? Like, (laughs) why would you ever be able to sign a band again? So. We were constantly fighting that shit, you know, and at first I think we got case to at least pay in advance for publishing or merchandising, you know, because Mm -hmm. some of the bands that were a little bit more sophisticated and had managers would come in and be like, hey, all right, so let me let me talk to your publishing person and we'd show them a fucking a desktop computer, (laughs) you know, (laughs) there was no person, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and then at least we could kind of introduce them to the merch person the merch person Mm. was was it was a little easier because you know there was someone to talk to and you can actually go see merchandise that they've made for other bands and things like that but even at the same time it just you know that merch is going to be such a huge fucking income stream for a band you know the biggest and other than touring which we didn't have anything to do with thank god and (laughs) uh you know that's a tough thing to try to like take away from a group. So would touring be managed by a third party then? Well, yeah, I mean, that was like on the band, right? So sometimes we would help them get an agent and right, certainly okay. we, we would work in concert with the agent, you know, to properly promote touring. But um, ultimately that was their business, you know? Mm. There was a story that uh, after Beneath the Remains came out for Sepultura, um, the guys were hanging out in Brazil. I think uh, Max's mum was ill. Uh, that didn't mean to rhyme, I guess it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was simply a matter of ringing up Case and saying, "Look, 
we haven't got any money. We know the record's <laughs> doing well. Give us some money, or we might not, you know, we might cease to exist as a band because we can't get the bus into town. And yeah, I don't know that story specifically, but I have to imagine that there were definitely stories like that. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if your band is making money, you can always like negotiate something, you know? Yeah. Um, as long as you can see a light at the end of the tunnel, so what? You know, if like if they're due the money in September, it's fine to give it to them in June, you know? Sure. Um, it doesn't really matter. Um, so I know that Sepultura had that kind of financial relationship with the label, you know, because they were very often in the black, you know? Yeah. So as long as you can calculate, you know, what royalties they were owed, you know, for down the line, you know, you could just always give it to them a little earlier. Yeah. No biggie. Obviously, there might be some notable exceptions as well. If you know you've, you're hedging your bets correctly on a certain band, for example, obviously, Sepultura, Sepultura is going to be a good one. X Order might be in the black. Be a little tricky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you don't know what's going to happen with the next one. You with don't Sepultura, know. Sepultura, it's pretty easy to predict that Arise would do just fine. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, so in terms of, like, I, I don't need to, fo- I don't want to focus too much on, like, the black and white of the actual job. But in terms of A&R assessments, would you sign a band and then hand them off? Or would you be their lifetime sort of dad person in the label? I mean, uh, I would always try to be their lifetime person. So, you know, again, while I would work with the other departments, um, which again, they, they developed over time. They weren't the same when I started there as they were (laughs) towards the end. Um, You know, there were people there that I guess were supposed to know their jobs a little better as time went on. Um, They did and didn't, depending on who they were. Um, But I was never comfortable handing them off. I thought it was a terrible idea. Mm. I thought every record company, the A&R guy should be the product manager as well. Um, Cool. But I understood that, like, you know, a label had lots of releases and you had to prioritize and all that stuff. But nobody was going to be a better champion than I was for the band that I signed. Um, and in many cases, we're not going to have a better idea of what to do with them either. Mm. You know, um, so there's no but, contractual obligation to hand them off or anything like that. It was kind of, it yeah, was, it's just kind of worked that way. And, and okay. most, most every label worked in the handoff kind of format, you know? Yeah. Um, but I had never worked like that before. I'd only worked at, you know, one indie label prior and I mm-hmm. did the same there. And, you know, we were sort of showing, um, the rest of the company, what to do with these bands, um, sure, yeah. you know, so ultimately we, we thought we were the best people to be doing that. Many hats. Yeah. Many a hat. Yeah. And it was fine because again, that was your band and you wanted to see the best things happen for them. So, you know, that's, that's how I felt most comfortable. Mm. So shout me down if this is remotely contentious, but how come Monty on some of his earlier bands releases gets an exec producer credit? And I don't think I can see any on yours. Yeah, I I don't know what that's about. I think uh, <laughs> it just sort of looked good maybe on the album. Um, yeah. I don't really know because technically, you know, Case would have been the executive producer on everything. And yeah, technically. It's, it's sort of silly to put that credit, you know, on those albums. Um, I don't know. I, didn't even, I don't even know if I knew that. Seems a technicality. It could even be that it, there wasn't a slot for A&R listings on an album so they just used yeah or, produce, or something yeah i think they were just guessing <laughs> yeah <laughs> to be honest okay um road racer obviously that was to prevent the, the ip conflict with warner brothers yeah um what about rc 
There was an RC imprint which seemed to yeah, serve think... exactly the same purpose. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing was really fucking confusing, and um, and by the time I got there, thankfully falling apart. Um, you know, so <laughs> you know, I guess I didn't understand why there were all these imprints. It just made mm. no sense to me. Again, yeah. I think it's similar to the executive producer thing. I think they were guessing. Um, <laughs> You know, like, well, we'll have RC because this death metal band is more extreme than this death metal band. Um, You know, it didn't make any sense to me. So I was definitely of the mind that they should throw them all out the window. Cool. Makes sense. Uh, So Roadrunner's first gold is Bloody Kisses in November 95. Yeah. Do you all go out? Do you all get hammered? I think that uh, that happened. Uh, I believe... Maybe the day we all got our gold records or something like that. But, um, yeah. I mean, yes, it was a huge accomplishment. Um, it was sort of unheard of for a label of that stature at that time to sell a half a million records or something. You know, that It's was an big, indie you know, label up until the end. I say the end, it's still bloody going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, at that time, it was completely indie. Um, you know, there was no, no major distribution, no anything. You know, it mm. was completely roadrunner records and important well at the time called red uh distribution it was the same company though um but you know it was all done independently and Mm. it was simply on the strength of a record being that good and a band being that good and everything fell into place like they got every tour they could have wanted they toured with pantera um motley crew nine inch nails back to back to back that's awesome i mean who gets that you know that's like you know that's everything working at the same time and, i knew um pete was yeah. good friends with phil anselmo um, yeah he he became very good friends because phil was a big carnivore fan yeah so he followed the, you know through typo negative and loved pete and once they finally got to meet i mean you could tell that there was like this kinship with those two guys it kind of like when i was going back and listening to the record similar to like the meet me podcast i'm going to call it the sister podcast because it's also dealing with the history of roadrunner yeah thank you for the tip off when i was listening back through that when i started hearing some of the the humor and some of the abrasiveness of that record on bloody kisses it made perfect sense that Pete and phil would be (laughs) would be good mates no it it, you could tell that they're both just they're button pushers you know, they're into yeah. shock value. They, you know, they don't mind if they offend you. And, you know, that's, you could see them just sitting up all night, you know, drinking and fucking mm-hmm. having this conversation about bands and, you know, and, and music and just society and stuff. And, you know, you could see that just never ending if they didn't want it to, you know. Did uh, anyone push back on Kill All the White People? Not at that point because Pete had a history. He did. Yeah, yeah, like, of course. Like, like putting shit like that out there prior, you know, mm. um, that was even more confusing, you know, <laughs> than I mean, kill all the white people, at least immediately you could take it as a joke, you know? Yeah. Whereas like Jesus, Hitler and race war, you're like, what does he mean by this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like, I'm not sure what side he's on, um, you know, so I don't think it was any different than anything he'd done before. And it goes straight into We Hit Everyone. So it's like, if you think of Bloody Kisses as like the product of itself, it's the the, the start and the book end of that entire album. It, in its own context, it makes so much sense. Especially if no, he was absolutely. receiving already, uh, he was receiving some sort of backlash on, you know, Jesus Hitler and all that stuff. 
kill the white people. We hate everyone. Just to be clear, guys. <laughs> yeah, let's just put it out there. It's like, you know, there's yeah. no guessing now. Yeah. Lovely change of pace in that record as well. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Perfect. Um, similarly, Dynamo 1995. So I think like oh. 80% of that festival was Roadrunner Bands. It was, was one of the greatest days of my life. Did, did, yeah, my, my question as I've worded it is, did the whole company go? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, not the whole company, but, um, but you know, there were some of us that were sent over, you know, that yeah. sort of expected to go. Wow, that's really a tough job. Um, <laughs> like, I'll go to Holland for a few days and see a fucking two-day festival. Yeah, um, totally. And, and, you know, there were a couple of people I remember, I think, that, like, took vacation just to go to it. But mm. it's the kind of thing that, like, you know, Dynamo had been going for quite a few years already. It's Absolutely, not like a yeah. new festival, but it had never been that big. That was the biggest year ever. There were 120,000 people there um, when all is said and done. So going into it, you knew it would be this great thing. Mm. But I think you had to be there to understand just what it fucking meant and yeah. what it felt like. You know, um, it was a really special, special event. And something that could never happen again, could probably never happen anywhere else, you know? Um, yeah. It was unbelievable. It was just complete fucking domination, you know? I guess it the, was, the point of the question is to sort of say, you've had a big year with, um, obviously, the, the Bloody Kisses going out and um, uh, Arise, pre- Chaos AD previously. But it's good to know the business knew that it was a big deal to have, like, 80% of your bands on this well-established metal festival. Oh, a lot I mean, of like good sort of like um, watershed moments. Yeah, I mean, it just sort of started at like 12 noon with Madball. Yeah. And it ended with the headliner slot with, I think Paradise Lost may have closed. Local lunch for me, yeah. Yeah, but ultimately, I mean, it was all about typo negative playing right totally. before them, you know? Um, and the beauty was like, typo negatives about to play and it starts to rain you know and it's just it's fucking perfect you know (laughs) it's like it goes exactly the way it's supposed to even whatever mystical higher force there is made it fucking rain during their set you know (laughs) and it was just amazing and again bookended by roadrunner bands and so much of what was in the middle both days and on the skate stage and like all that it was all fucking roadrunner bands and it was just everybody just was shining that day like everybody put in just a sick over-the-top performance um and just put the roadrunner rubber stamp on fucking europe that day you know and that's what it felt like yeah I'm, I'm glad I asked that question because I, I, when I keep reading behind all this stuff, I, I understood it was a big deal and I'm glad I, I focused on it so I can write a little bit around it and, and give it its own um, shining star in the middle of that decade. Yeah, because Definitely. I mean, there were Roadrunner bands on probably since the first Dynamo, you know, yeah. um, when it was really just a small, you know, like six, seven band thing or whatever, mm-hmm. um, you know, like kind of back of a truck stage or whatever yeah. and and you know but but to get to that point and then i mean like doggy dog for me i mean that was that was just a crazy day because i <laughs> you know that people talk about their performance that day which was spectacular um but going into it we were literally having discussions like man they're like the lightest band yeah. on the bill like they yeah. are i wonder how this is gonna go you know is this going to go well for them? You know, 
And, you know, you saw throughout the day that nobody was getting a bad reaction. You know, just mm-hmm. some people got better reactions than others. And they some people went to go for a drink. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, like you see a couple of songs and then go back to the fucking Roadrunner, you know, beer tent or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the Roadrunner coffee shop, which was a little bit more unofficial. But uh. <laughs> um, but but, you know, the they go on and they just murdered the place, you know, mm. and we were just like, how did that just happen? You know, yeah. like with the bands that they played between, you know, they probably played between like Machine Head and Biohazard, you know, yeah, and it was yeah. like, how did they kill like that? You know, and it was just the nature of how Europe accepted these bands. You yeah. know, it was just a different thing. And it's cool to look back on the footage because it's all grainy and pretty shitty. Yeah. So as yeah. someone who wasn't there, it's it's easy to understand that it's a bigger deal. <laughs> because yeah. There's cameras I mean, yeah. And then when you look out at that crowd, I mean, even if people were just standing still, like you're just in awe, you know, you can't yeah. believe that that many people are at a festival with those other bands, you know, yeah. like that's the that's the type of band that these people came to see. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't fucking Oasis, you know, <laughs> like Oasis wouldn't draw 120,000 people at that place, you know, yeah. it, it's like it was just shocking. Yeah. <laughs> um. Moving, moving swiftly on, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, yeah, that's all right. Uh, were you overseeing Sepultura when Max left? No. So I was only looking over dealing with Sepultura on the second half of the Arise campaign when they right. went out on tour again. So that when they, they went out with uh, Ozzy and the Black Sabbath you know, reunion happened in California mm-hmm. when they were on the show. And then... They went out with Ministry and Helmet um, in America, which was kind of a groundbreaking thing for a band like that to be on a tour like that. You know, what was wrong with the Epic deal? Uh, so there was nothing wrong with it. What had happened was, you know, the band, as so many bands on indep- independent labels at that time did, they thought that if they had been on a major label, they would have been bigger, right? right. That they would have sold more records just by being who they were. If mm-hmm. they had the better distribution and this, that, and the other thing, right? Mm-hmm. So they got Case somehow to negotiate this weirdo deal, whereas Epic would do one record, like do the mm-hmm. next record. They would do Chaos AD. Yeah. So they negotiated that. Now, me being their product manager, I would have to go over to the Sony offices and work with the Epic people, you know, to okay. you know, to help them market. Sepultura because understand you know, Sepultura. Yeah, like they're yeah. part of that. Like they're not just like some big metal band. It's not like I mean they had Ozzy and Rage Against the Machine and Pearl Jam, but they didn't mm-hmm. have Sepultura, you know? Um and so I'd go over there and they were like nice people and I knew a lot of the people who worked on the metal stuff over there. So yeah. it actually, you know, was kind of an easy um I don't want to say transition, but like just the working relationship between myself and those people, it was pretty good, you know? Cool. And so I thought they did a good job, but when all is said and done, they just didn't really do any better than Roadrunner did. Right. You know? okay. they, they did roughly the same business. They didn't sell hundreds of thousands of more records, you know, mm. it, they sold almost the same. So it just didn't, it didn't work the way the band thought it would work, you know? So then suddenly the label had the upper hand again, because they're like, we kind of told you this wasn't really going to be so great. You know, Um, it was fine. It didn't set them back, 
but it didn't advance them at all either. You know, which it wasn't the, uh, the silver spoon they were looking for. Not I even guess close. More, of, more of an antagonistic way of saying it, but it wasn't going to propel them as much as I thought. Yeah. No, they weren't a commercial band, and like yeah. at the end of the day, like major labels. You hit a wall if you're not going to be a radio artist, you know, if it's not going to be about the radio for you, there's only so much that a major label can do for you. They can give you really good distribution, although Sepultura already had really good distribution owned by the same company, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, so you had Sony and then you had Red and they were the same fucking company. Um, So that didn't change anything. Um, They weren't getting on the radio. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so they got all the college radio and all that shit that they always had. You know, they didn't tour with any bigger bands. Um, you know, nothing really happened for them that wasn't already happening for them. So yeah. it just didn't it didn't do anything for them that wasn't already happening. I see. Oh, OK. Understood. Um, my question about Sepultura when Max left. Yeah. What was what was the office like that the following Monday? Well, <laughs> was I, mean, like, oh, I, I shit. mean, I shit. I mean, I was gone, right? So I, I didn't work there by that point. Oh, really? Um, I thought it was in '96. I could oh, be wrong. That, um, it may have been, but I think at, at first, if I recall correctly, people thought it was going to be temporary. I don't think anybody right. thought. I don't think anybody thought he left the band. You know, <sighs> I think people thought he was on hiatus. You know, that sure. he needed a break because they really worked so relentlessly for such a long time Mm. um you know they deserved a break like they had just been non-stop for years you know from it seemed from like beneath the remains on through to uh ksad like it felt like they were on tour the entire time you know Mm. um and so i don't think people really believed that he left until some time went by and realized that he wasn't coming back and so i left in 97 so maybe by that time he really was gone, you know. Yeah. I could just picture like the Wolf of Wall Street when when um, all the stock stock markets crash and everyone walks into the office like, oh shit. Right, right. <laughs> well, you would you would think. I mean, I mean, if that had happened a couple of years earlier, it would have been devastating because Sepultura was so by far the biggest. It was band, the flagship, you know? yeah. Um, and by then they had some other successes, um, mm-hmm. so it wasn't quite as painful. Um, but at the same time, it was a know, slow burn. It's fucking Max, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it came back with Soulfly, so I guess. Yeah, but it's still it's never the same, you know. Sepultura yeah. was was really like, you know, that was Roadrunner Slayer, you know. Mm. Apparently, the new album's shit up. By the way, I uh, have not heard it. Apparently, the new Sepultura and the new Cavalera Conspiracy are both absolutely fucking devastating. Uh, they're both good, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm. I'm glad you're telling me because, like, I was only planning on listening to one of them. Um, I would listen to Cavalera Conspiracy for sure. But um, but I'm just, you know, I heard good things about the Sepultura album, but I just wish they were never Sepultura with Derek, you know? Mm, yeah. I if see. they were a different band, like the way Soulfly had become, um, yeah. I think I would have been able to tolerate it a little better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Some bands can tolerate it, as in they can tolerate that kind of loss and they can replace it, but some bands just can't. Yeah, and I actually I like Derek and I like those guys and yeah. you know, I'm sure they're still making some decent music or whatever, but it's just not appealing to me. Like I don't I don't go, Oh my god, I have to hear that, you know, where like if Max and Igor make a record, I'm like, Oh, I really want to hear that. You yeah, know? totally. Totally. Uh so the really that Roder and I'm I'm seeing on this Discogs thing I'm looking I'm scrolling through like that I've written up. It seems in the eighties case is just kind of getting 
Case is kind of leaning towards, or he's leaning towards like antagonistic bands, which is like Merciful Fate are kind of Satanist band in yeah. the middle of the Satanic Panic. Um, we're seeing Rise of Thrash in the mid 80s. So by the time Monty gets there, he's armed to the teeth with a lot of German thrash metal bands that he's into. Right. There's a bit of hardcore in there through Hawker. There's uh, still a diversification through, I guess, Emergo. And we're still licensing and distributing out your ass. So there's a lot of business going on. Early yeah. 90s, we've got Florida Death with Scott Burns sort of reigning, reigning the, the, the uh, mixing desk at that point. That seems oh, yeah. to be the brand, um, or the, the key brand as it is. And then when you're in between 92 and 97, there's a massive expansion on two fronts in my, in, from what I can observe. One, you've got the CD explosion. Yeah. People are using CDs. So there's a lot of singles going out, a lot of singles distributed yeah. across the board, any kind of music, anyone who wants it. Because I guess Case still has that foothold in Europe from America, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's right. Similarly, seen a lot of alt rock. Um, I'd even go as far to, have you seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Um, yeah, I mean, a long time ago, sure. I call it bronze core because right. these are bands that they'd, <laughs> would be fucking perfect playing the bronze. Right, right. Interesting. Was this by design or was this just case trying to make a natural expansion and, and, and trying to test things out? I think it was a little of both. I think uh, his desire to expand was certainly there. Mm. I think bringing me over there was part of that. You know, I think he knew that at least the way it started out was that I wanted to do things that were different than they were doing, but yeah. I wasn't going to do anything that was so foreign that it was a waste of time or they wouldn't be able to handle it. Right. Mm. Um, so I know that, you know, case always had that dream. Even from the day that I started, he had this dream that we have to fucking really, really break a band. Right. Like cool. I want to break a band. Like I don't want to, I don't want to just be known as the guy who put out DSI records. You know, mm. I want to, I want to the, the music business and the fans at large to know that we did that, you know, that we did that band. We were the ones responsible. Yeah. So again, like, you know, when I brought Madball the Roadrunner, I don't think he was all that excited. I think he, mm. you know, just knew that that was a band that we should have. And I think they did, they, they achieved beyond his expectations, but sure. you know, that, that wasn't what he had in mind. You know, he wanted a band that would be on the radio in America and then it would follow in overseas, mm -hmm. uh, UK, Europe, you know, South America, wherever, Japan. Um, that's what he wanted. So at the end of the day, um, I wasn't conscious of that, bringing the bands that I brought there. Like sure. when I signed Doggy Dog, it wasn't like they're going to be pop darlings on MTV and Viva overseas. That was mm -hmm. not what we saw, you know, at first. It was like, here's this, you know these skater guys from New Jersey, <laughs> they're not even ready to make an album, you know, like, right. so let's do an EP first. Um, you know, it'll do well in you know, the Northeast of America, you know, sure. like that's, that was the first goal. Like, cause those are the bands that they're playing with. And so let's get something out, you know, expand the visibility, you know, and As then if it was we'll, done on that scale. That was it. Done with love. You know? Clearly. You know, that was it. I mean, there was no other plan. You know, it was like, and let's build them up to the point where it's worth making an album, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so we, we did that. And then, you know, I knew we made a really strong album, but I didn't understand 
that road because I'd only been there for like two years, you know. Yeah. Um, by the time All Borough Kings came out, I'm talking about two years. You know, mm-hmm. when we did the EP, I was there a year. Um, and, you know, basically, I didn't really understand the power of Roadrunner overseas, you know. Right, um, sure. I, I didn't get that they really fucking knew what they were doing, you know. Yeah. And that they had access through the metal bands, really, with MTV and Viva and Germany mm-hmm. and the press and, you know, Kerrang! And, you know, even to a lesser extent, but like the NME, you know, and, and things like that. So yeah, sure. I didn't understand that they, they could do that. So when I financed, you know, a doggy dog tour of the UK, like 11 mm-hmm. shows in the UK with Bad Brains, you know, like at the begin, like the end of the EP, beginning of the album cycle, you know, uh, I had no idea that <laughs> when Biohazard would later ask them the tour, you know, uh, in Europe, and Biohazard was obviously very, very big over there, yeah. um, that, you know, all the promoters would go, oh, we know that band. They toured here with Bad Brains, you know, mm-hmm. and that that would mean something. And then this tour with Biohazard would turn into them becoming an MTV entity, you know? Yep. I had no idea. We did not look at it that that's what the, you know, we just rolled with what went on. So they got asked to do tours. We made sure they were able to do the tours, you know, mm. and you wouldn't say no to a, bi- nobody would say no to a biohazard tour oh, God, at no. that time. Cause they were fucking immense. You know, they were drawing between a thousand and 3,500 people a show, you know, yeah. and then doggy dog gets to be main support, you know, and, now they're getting the attention. They're getting the MTV attention and the press yeah. attention. And, you know, Biohazard loved them, you know, so they helped. Um, and so, again, like, you never you never go into it seeing that end result, you know? Oh, sure. Um, never, yeah. ever. Anybody who tells you otherwise is completely full of shit. Yeah. Um, you know, and look what happened to them. It was – they they broke as like a pop group, you know, in, in England and Europe. And it's, it was mind boggling. And by the time I got over there to finally see it, I couldn't believe what I was seeing, you know? Mm. It's interesting when I'm going through the releases, every single band between, uh, sort of late early nineties, it's all Monty's projects. Yeah. And then it's kind of, it's reassuring to me to see your name popping up because I feel, all oh, right, you can, you can leave early on a Friday now. Yeah. <laughs> can you right. Give me well, a quick rundown of the bands that you did sign. Yeah. So let's see. So for Roadrunner, there was obviously doggy dog. Yes. There was black train Jack. Yes. Like that there album, was, by the way. The first all right. One. Yeah. There was Madball. Yeah. Um, there was die monster die. Yeah. There was thorn. There was Shelter. There was VOD. Yeah. Um, trying to think. They're on my list of VOD because I'm a massive metalcore guy. That's how I got into Roadrunner. Ah, I just did an an interview for No Echo. He's doing a whole piece on their first album. Um, No way. I'm trying to think if there's if I'm missing anything. I did. There was a a dancehall reggae compilation I put out. um, Okay. uh, And called Jam Down Vibration that that we did. That was just like a one off, you know thing like dance hall had gotten absolutely huge in america yeah. um especially in new york um 
huge West Indian population in Brooklyn, you know? Sweet, yeah. And, and at one point, it was bigger than hip-hop here. I mean, it really took over the streets. Wow. And, and you know, for about two years, like when Shabba Ranks broke and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, Shabba Ranks and Supercat got, like, really big. And mm-hmm. that that scene just got huge here. Like, people were blasting that out of Jeeps more than they were, you know, rap records. And yeah. It got huge, so we did a compilation. We did okay with it. I'm just trying to think if I missed anything. Um, do, you then, to, do you want to try and throw some at you? And, yeah. And tell. Uh, Waltari? No, I, I uh, worked with them a little bit as a product manager. Okay. Lethal Charge? No. Zero Vision? Nope. Killing Chainsaw? Nope. You know what? This is like a big run of Brazilian thrash metal bands, which just uh, crop up in 94. And oh, that's no, funny. We, they're, all one, they're all one shot. Brazilian thrash metal bands. That was an accident. I was meant to ask you about that separately, but... They, they probably came out only in Brazil. <laughs> yeah, I think so. For the most part, they did. Um, but I'm just... What the hell was going on? Yeah, right. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm not even sure I know who these bands are. <laughs> um, Pet Lamb. I remember Pet Lamb, but that was later. Okay. Okay. Uh, Waving Corn. No, that I think was only in Europe. Blue Mountain. Blue Mountain? No, that was Jeff Pakman. Is this another A&R person I should be emailing? Yeah, probably. He's a good What's guy. his name again? Jeff Pakman. P-A-C-H-M-A-N. Okay. Well, I'm glad he's I on, did stick on, with Pacman. Yeah, he's on, so. uh, he's, on, he's on Facebook and whatnot. Sweet. Thanks for that. Uh, you got Shelter. Rogerio is Monty. Wormhole. No, that was, that was somebody else. Yeah. Maybe you've got them all may have them all and then uh you know there was the one the one thing that i got to do and i I was definitely not their a and r guy but i i put um i helped put fear factory together with reese fulber right okay Um, so that was an interesting like sort of conversation turned experiment turned he helped shape the sound of that band you know has it been an interesting couple of weeks for you then, knowing that you had that input in well, the early days? Well, I mean, I guess I'm just sort of watching it from afar, you know? It's like that whole thing is just stupid, unnecessary turmoil, most likely. Yeah, I um, think there's a massive, massive, massive opportunity for uh, Fear Factory now. Yeah, I think now would be a great time for them to be, well, doing what they were about to do. Um, yep. You know, and now I guess they're going to do it separately. But, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know the inner workings there so much oh, anymore. No. All I know um, is there's a bunch of displaced metalcore singers from the you know middle to early of last decade who would be perfect. Yeah, well, I guess he's going to be uh, he's going to be looking for some of those, right? Yeah. Um, well, we shall see. But uh, yeah, I mean, but that was interesting, you know. And it was a conversation I had with Dino about you know the Prodigy Experience album, you know. Sure. And and how he wanted to incorporate more of that sound, you know, mm. into fear factory and just seemed reluctant to do it because he was worried about like fucking what people would say on message boards. Right. You know? Yeah. And I'm, and I'm like, you're out of your mind. I was like, there's a <laughs> whole lot more people who've never heard your band than have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's wrong with that? So we concocted the idea to team him up with Reese and then, you know, in an effort to, you know, do toe in the water, you know, they did the EP instead of, you know, just jumping into the next album. And they did that fear is the mind killer EP. And yeah. I think it's sold as many copies as soul of a new machine. Yeah, totally. That's, that's insane. This is a uh, prior to Colin then. 
Yeah. Which is uh, yeah no, well, no, Colin had worked with them already. Oh, okay, so, right, right. So Colin did the first album, but it seemed like he was he made kind of a death metal album with them, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was a little bit more advanced than that, but not much, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, this, is, this is a bit of, I've, I've got a, a kind of a compilation of no context questions now. Okay. So I'm going to apologize. So, right, when I was first doing this first part of this project, which I threw on YouTube and it's on the podcast and stuff, there's this giant fucking gap of information. There's just nothing between 1965 and 1980 as to what the fuck case was up to. Oh, God. I, there's, there's, there's some poly, I've got two stories from his days at Polygram, which are pretty funny, um, which are kind of chronicled by a, you know, Dutch, you know, 60s bands. And then right. Gloria Cavalera says that he was Sabbath's, Black Sabbath's A&R guy in the 70s. That's all I've got. Do you have any idea what he was doing before he emerged out of his cave to form a Roadrunner in 1980? I mean, I don't know that much. I know he was really like, you know, in the major label system, you know, he was, yeah. that's what he was doing. Um, if I'm not mistaken, and, and again, I'm vaguely remembering this, that he kind of had something to do with Jim Croce. That, yes, like, maybe, that was maybe the... he, he released a Jim Croce record. He released a bunch in Europe. Uh, they were the like the, the initial um, uh, the initial Roadrunner output from 1980s. It, it's often cited as the the first thing that Roadrunner right, put out, which is which is sort of like you know again I just heard about it, but it, yeah, that's that's like the thing that I've heard about that seems to be accurate, you know. Um, that, that he did that. But I, I, I know very little other than the fact that it just sort of okay. happened. He's an enigma. He continues to be an enigma. Oh, he is. Like, he, he absolutely, you know, uh, you know, when I worked with him on the book stuff a little later on, like, you know, more recently, you know, he just, he just doesn't want to be noticed, you know? He actually, yeah. and, and when I worked at Jive, the owner was the same way. So, like Monty had executive producer credits on albums. You, mm -hmm. you weren't even allowed to have an A and R credit um, on a Jive album. Like nobody right. wanted, um, because he just viewed it as like we all have something to do with this, and that's it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so very, very private. His whole thing was, I want to be able to walk down the street and not have anybody give me a fucking demo tape. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I this think Case was, sense. yeah, Case was kind of similar. He's like a very unassuming guy, you know, like mm. you just you would never know that he's the guy behind all this, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he just he just didn't want to be in the forefront at all. <laughs> and he's going to work to keep it that way. I'll find out what yeah. he's been doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Probably> won't. <laughs> yeah. OK, let's let's move on to uh, um, the unsung hero of this story. So Holly Lane is um, uh, Roadrunner's first American hire. Um, yeah, she was effectively the chief operating officer of Roadrunner in the US and she was responsible for <laughs> opening up the office, the initial office and those first um, imprints and those distribution deals and presumably booking cases fly over. Yeah, all that good stuff. So. yeah, probably. And that's it. And then she went off to create Mechanic. Yeah, so she went over with uh, Steve Sinclair. Mm. And um, now, so it's interesting because Steve Sinclair was gone before my time at yes. Important. You know, but he was instrumental in bringing, you know, from Megadeth to Agnostic Front to that company, you know. Yeah. And so uh, he leaves and forms Mechanic and brings Holly. 
and not directly because Holly was doing other things at the time, but um, she was already, I don't actually, you know what? I don't know what the transition was for her from Roadrunner to Mechanic. This is a point of contention. There's, there's a few points of contention as we sort of open this chapter of the story. First of all, it's exactly who signed Road, um, signed Roadrunner, signed Sepultura. Because Monty says it was him, but Holly says it was her on her online presence, which is still up. But also, Monty says when he joined in 1987, Holly left about 10 days later. But all of Holly's materials indicate that she was there until 1988. So, Well, I believe that there was a mechanic uh, in 87. And I remember her yeah. always being there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and my understanding is that Monty signed Sepultura with the help from, like, Borovoy. Right, okay. That's my. That's how I've always understood it. I've never... That's another rabbit hole I'm yet to go down. <laughs> like, she... Like, like my understanding is that Holly certainly facilitated the contracting of the band, mm. but I don't believe she discovered the band, you know? Like, it's not like, yeah. I don't think she heard of Sepultura and said, hey, Monty, go try to get them. I don't think it was like that, you know? Yeah, I think um, the story I've got so far is, I think a, a, a tape ended up on Don K's lap. Right, it and, could be Don K too, or maybe I'm mistaken, Borovoy and Don yeah, K. Yeah, it could be, it could be Borovoy as well. I know but, that of the three Musketeers, it was one of those that handed it to Monty. Yeah, because Monty was very, very close with both. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's just some some contention because Holly says one thing and one, uh, one says the other, but it could yeah, be I mean, one of those things where we, we we can no longer ask Holly sadly. No. But, but but I just I don't think that's I don't think she had all that much to do with mm. technically signing the band, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell me about her anyway because I know nothing, and I think she needs um she needs a a gold star for her input. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is I didn't work with her, you know, so mm-hmm. she was gone by the time I. Um, I was doing even in effect, you know, um, and, you know, so we crossed paths a million times. She was always super sweet, you know, um, she, I knew she was doing all the stuff over at Roadrunner and everything. And, you know, just, we would just kind of pass by one another, you know, and then while I was at, I believe it was while I was at Roadrunner, I think, trying to remember exactly what point it was but it could have even been while i was at in effect because the years the years blend together at some point for me and i'm not even sure which was which but but steve sinclair was interested in hiring me for mechanic mm-hmm. and so i would go over there to meet with him i had to have been when i was at roadrunner because i remember walking over there and the roadrunner offices and the mechanic offices were very close together They're like two streets apart yeah blocks yeah. apart and so I would walk over there and Holly was obviously there. So that's kind of how I got to know her. And mm. then, you know, I would see her out at bars and at shows and stuff like that. And would always, you know, um, stop to chat. And again, like we didn't even talk so much about business, you know, like, sure. we just we just like bullshitted. I just liked her, you know, and I felt like we had plenty of mutual friends and we ran in similar circles. And it was kind of it, you know, like I never. I never was like, Hey, what's going on at Roadrunner? I mean, I didn't really, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Um, and so, you know, then fast forward to trying to remember the exact date, but it was probably maybe a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And HR, you know, from bad brains was yep. playing a show, a solo show out in Brooklyn. And I'm at the show and I'm hanging out like it's between bands 
and I hear a female voice say my name and I turn around <laughs> fucking Holly. Right. And I hadn't seen her in years, you know, um, I, 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 we were friends on Facebook, but I hadn't seen her in person in well over a decade, you know? Sure. Um, and we just hung out like for two hours, you know, mm-hmm. and just talked and hung out and blah, blah, blah. And it was so fun to talk to her. And we were like, reminiscing about roadrunner sh- shit and she was laughing about you know people that she used to work with and we were mm-hmm. you know just comparing notes on people and stuff and albums and and by the way at this time also never one mention of sepultura that she did anything you know with regard to <laughs> nice, okay. um, you know so whatever and then you know we're talking about monty and monty's a very good friend of mine you know so we were talking about monty and like all these people and it was just this great you know reminiscing session it may not even been a year and a half ago it may have been more recent than that Mm. um and then i heard that she died and i'm like what you know i was like it feels like i was just with her you know and i just remember her as being just super genuine and really driven Mm. and just loved music and just wanted to just do whatever she could you know and that's what i know of her you know it's really interesting this is the kind of the statement which kind of broke the band label dynamic for me and maybe more, more sympathetic to the label because everyone in this industry and everyone I'm reading about their only agenda is making the fucking metal happen. Yeah. Well, yeah. that was at that time, that was it. And, you know, making the metal happen. And for me, it was like, let's make the hardcore happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, but, you know, I always loved metal. I wasn't one of those people that denied my love of metal. You know, a lot of people like, you know, morphed into like these hardcore kids that denied that they ever liked metal, which is insane, yeah, yeah. you know? And it's like, why, why would you do that? I was like, Very I much like brothers in arms is hardcore and metal. Well, well, that's what I mean. It's like, yeah. you know, I like fucking man of war as much as I like Madball, you know? And, <laughs> and so it's like, you know, not ashamed to say it, but, but yeah, at that time, like I said earlier too, that all of these indie labels, especially at that time, you know, from, from the early to mid eighties, you know, on, um, to like the mid nineties. Yeah. It was all fans who did these things, who started yeah. these labels and, you know, like learn the business as they went, you know, it wasn't the other way around. They weren't music business people that were, you know, told to like, Hey, go sign a bunch of metal bands. That's not how it worked. Yeah. You know, it was, the, it was the other direction. And so, you know, when I did an effect, I didn't know how to fucking work at a, <laughs> a record label. I had no idea. You know, I don't know how to do an interview, mate. You just you just fucking do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. It's just like ask some good questions. That's kind of all you need to know, and, and make sure that the recorder works. But uh, yeah, I've been checking. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's you know it that's it. It's like the passion came first, and and that's what it was about. I mean, and I was lucky enough to find you know people that were willing to trust me to fill in the blanks with the rest of it. You know. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um. How much time? You got? I've realized I've nicked you for 90 minutes. I didn't mean it. No, I've, got, I've got a little bit more time. Okay. I've only got like three or four more questions, but there could no, be about whole ones. Um, going back to bands, who's responsible for uh, Junkie XL? Oh, so Junkie XL was, I forgot who it was exactly in Holland who mm-hmm. either like, you know, was a fan or something like stumbled upon him. Mm-hmm. And so that came to us from Holland. And I don't know if it was, there were two people it could have been. 
And one of them was sort of like the marketing product manager. His name was Alain, A-L-A-I-N. Verhava, V-E-R-H-A-V-E, who became a really good friend to me um, while I was there. When I would go to Holland, I would stay at his house and stuff like that. And he was Mm. the first person that told me about them anyway. And I remember, like, it was, you know, the dance music thing was always so huge over there. Um, Yep. You know, Europe in general, but UK too. And I think around that time in the UK, the sort of like, um, you know, like the the whole Chemical Brothers prodigy, you know, like all of the big beat shit was like really starting to happen. Mm. And so Junkie Excel to me was a Dutch guy doing something very similar. It was very New York hip hop inspired in terms of like the way the beats were. The tempos were different, but it was definitely the same style of beats and patterns and whatnot. So I really kind of took to it. I really liked what he did. And so, you know, there were some people in the American office that thought it was, you know, it's cool because it just sounded like a lot of the European stuff sounded European, if you know what I mean. Like it yep. had the European switch turned on a little bit and it, it wasn't douche, exactly douche, the most, douche, douche. well, and it wasn't the most groundbreaking, but yep. it was, yep. it was still cool, you know, but it wasn't necessarily like the English DJs, we're more ahead of the time where on the continent, it felt a little bit behind England and America, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it had that, but it was still really good, you know? And I remember we hired him to do doggy dog remixes and, oh, sweet. and fear factory hired him to do remixes for the second, um, remix EP. Um, and that's so, so cause Dino played on, I think most of his albums. Yeah, I think so. And then, so he did stuff for, for fear factory. And then, um, I remember <clears throat> I went over for one of the festivals. It probably was Dynamo. It was either Dynamo or Pink Pop. Yeah. And, you know, I got to meet Tom and saw him play. And he was just like this super nice, like normal guy, you know? It's just blowing my mind because I was doing my homework last night. And um, I know that there's always a few sort of oddities in the Roadrunner catalog. And I thought, I'll, I'll see if this is a, cause it sounds like a distribution. It sounds like a licensing and distribution name. Uh, okay, it doesn't sound like a metal band, so I was like, all right, dive in. No, this was signed by Roadrunner. Okay, yeah, going through, going through. Oh, Dino played. Oh, Max played on him. Okay, great. And then yeah. it dawned on me on his third album, um, he is responsible for the remix of Elvis's A Little Less Conversation, which was That's- fucking huge in the UK. Yeah, huge everywhere. It was, yeah, yeah, and it annoyed the shit out of me because I was in my Iron Maiden head at school. Right, right, And this right. fucking song kept coming on the radio, so I was like, what? it all sort of came round to me. It all came full circle. Yeah, this sort of like house techno Elvis record. Yeah, yeah. It's just just Elvis with better mixed drums, really. Yeah, right. Please please tell me you're not a fan of that uh, fucking Danzig Elvis thing. (laughs) Absolutely fucking not. It's the worst thing I've ever heard. If you want to have a a bit of a laugh, you want to see the Red Letter Media episode on the Danzig film that he had out a couple of years ago. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I haven't seen it. It's pretty, I'll send you a link. It's pretty good. Oh, okay. If you've, yeah. if you've got like, if you've got 20 minutes to sort of fly through that, it's a, it's a good laugh. If, if it's a good laugh, I'm into it. <laughs> good stuff. So how did you meet Monty then? Did you know him prior to? Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah. knew him before we worked together. Um, so, you know, I knew him just again, like the music industry was quite small, especially the indie business, you know, and especially the, you know, the hard edged indie business and you know there were a couple of like 
conventions around that time. So you had the new music seminar Mm -hmm. and you had CMJ and things like that. So, you know, we would run into each other and Monty was always a super nice guy. And what was cool was I wasn't a particularly huge fan of the bands that he signed early on. Right. But he, but he was a fan of like sick of it all, you know, Mm -hmm. um, sick of it all was still is a favorite band for him and stuff. Um, so, you know, we, we bonded over music and we would see each other out and about, and, you know, as time went on, we, especially when we started working together, we became very good friends. And right. I even introduced Monty to his wife. Oh, sweet. Sweet. It gets to a point now where, where I, I don't see a great deal of Monty in terms of like the interviews he gives and things like that. But I know there's some podcasts out there which have him on. And I get the impression that he's not an A&R guy. He's just a professional metalhead. That's yeah, it stitch. feels that way. I mean, he is so fucking passionate about it and knows... Yeah. Like, like I like the minutiae as well. Like I really do. He yeah. likes going deeper into the minutiae than I'll even go, you know? So, sure. you know, he's, he's also like a bit more of like an audiophile than I am, you know? Yeah. Um, like, and I used to love gear and like, you know, like used to want to be up on what the fucking best consumer speakers were mm-hmm. and what studio monitors and blah, blah, blah. And I used to really care about that shit. Now I couldn't care less. Um, I, I moved into the school of like, play it for me on the worst shit you have. And if it sounds great, then I'm good, you know? Um, and, and, but Monty is still like a real stickler uh, for that stuff. And, you know, he, he, uh, loves the studio and loves that kind of stuff. And I, and I used to love it too, but, um, (laughs) he just, you know, he'll tell you if he thinks, He'll tell you if he thinks a hi hat is one like one deep or two loud, you know. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. Like cause since I started doing live sound, it's the, seeing a band on stage. Sometimes, yeah, the magic's there is a really good experience. But I'm looking at like the body language between them and the monitor guy. I'm trying to identify. Oh, there's right. a signal path that's gone wrong there. The magic's yeah. now in the production side, and I, I think yeah, that's right. great. Yeah, so I, I I love Monty for that stuff, but like he. Uh, you know, and what was great is that for a while there, I loved having those conversations, you know, yeah, I was yeah. totally into it. But after a while, I'm just like, yeah, I don't really care what new <laughs> headphones are, you know, blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, what does kind it of, rock? Yeah. Like uh, that's really where I stayed. And, you know, yeah. he continued looking at like audio magazines. Cool. Cool. He says that um, <laughs> it's kind of like got a view that when a band's formed, it can, that's, it's got its rocket fuel and it's going to shit gold for maybe five years. Do you take that? <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing. It's just kind of, you know, I'll tell you what's, what's interesting. So one of the producers I worked with a lot, his name is Tom Soares. Cool. Yep. So he did, he did a lot of records for me, both uh, Relativity and, and um, Roadrunner. And, and mm-hmm. his, his disciples did some of the other ones. Like, so some of his engineers you know, did other records. And when he would mix, he was always conscious of the fact that it was kind of this process that it was very easy to blow past the point when it really should have been done. Right. Yeah. Um, That it's very easy to have gotten the mix and then blown past it and Mm -hmm. undid it and not saved it. And then he turned it into something else, right? <laughs> and so his term was, now it sounds like music. Right. That's cool. And so <laughs> when he would say, now it sounds like music, that meant it's done. So right. sure, maybe there's a minor tweak here and there you can still do. 
but we're not changing whatever EQ we have on the guitars anymore. The drums are at the level more or less they should be. And the amount of room sound is what it should be. And, you know, the EQ is right on everything. If you want, like, eh, maybe you want to put this up a DB in this section mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, you could do it. good DB, for mastering. But you're, gonna, but you're never going to hear it, you know, anyway. Yeah. Like, if you don't do it at least three or four DB, you're not going to notice it. Um, when he said, it's music now, mm-hmm. this sounds like music. That's when you had a step away come back and listen and go yeah it's fucking right now you know (laughs) and 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 if you want to do more to it print this save it you know do all of the alternate versions and then you can play with it all you want but don't lose this yeah yeah because this is it right here it's all about gonna um, do better than this it's all about workflow isn't it everyone's got such a different way of doing it well that's it and it's like but but at some point you have to go no we we're done we got it Yeah. Like you can do different, but it isn't necessarily going to be better. You know, Um, it feels like a song, like the way the song was written. It's either feels like it's supposed to or it feels better than it's supposed to right now. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You'll hear Monty say quite a lot about there's some bands where the demos are better than the. Well, but he's a big demoitis guy, you know, right? Um, and he tends to, you know, worked i don't believe anybody should work that hard on demos you know <laughs> um i think that demos are to give you an idea mm-hmm. uh, and i don't think that you can ever really demo what you can do with an album and mm-hmm. you know sometimes that's okay and sometimes that's not so great because like people go into the studio the quote-unquote real studio and they try to overdo it because they look at it as making an album instead yeah. of getting a great take you know yeah, totally especially and, if it's the first time especially if it's their first time. That's one yeah. thing that I was talking about with VOD was, you know, you have Tim who's this like prowl the stage kind of guy. And then they hang this fucking stationary mic, you know, in front of him where he has to stand still yeah. and he has no idea what to do, Yeah, <laughs> you know? And so that was like the biggest challenge on the first album mm. was to get his vocals right, which when they played live was easy. Yeah. Um, because he would just stomp around the stage and scream the head off and, and hand the mic to the crowd, you know, every third second. And, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, that's how it worked. And then you get in the studio, but you have to anticipate that. Like, okay, mm. this guy's never done this before. Like this may be really uncomfortable for him, you know? Maybe should strap the mic into a snorry cam around his neck well, so he can still march around, but you're not going to lose any of the gain structure. Well, yeah. See, I've got well, my production they, head on. <laughs> yeah, they, they sort of figured out how to, like, bridge the gap between, like, super expensive mic and something he can run around with in the booth, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, and, I can't wait to go down the rabbit hole on that band. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, like, how it had to work, you know, because, you know, he just wasn't used to it. Yeah, yeah. So do you think bands, there are, are there any bands that have got better as they've got older? I'm, I'm thinking about Monty's five years of shitting gold and then past that, it kind of like, it's, I think at that point you, you want your band to either become an institution where you're never yeah. going to lose money on them or they're going to start bringing in the diminishing returns. And that's when you start seeing the downfall. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's different because I think there are bands that stay together for too long sometimes, right. you know, that they've seen their best days and it's just, 
probably time to either do the side project and step away and see if it's mm. worth coming back to or what, you know? Um, Green Day, yep. Yeah, well, there's a bunch, right? There's there's tons, whether they were really, really big and successful or even, you know, like the, the underground bands. But I do think there are bands that, I don't know about better, but certainly as good as they've ever been, you know? Sure. Um, I mean, shit, I saw Iron Maiden last year and that was as good as I've ever seen them. And I've been seeing them since 1982, you know? Yeah, man. And it's like, they were fucking, they blew me away, you know? And I was like, they just played for two and a half hours, you know, um, you know, Bruce may have flown the plane here, you know, mm. it's like, and they were just devastating, but I'm thinking about like, you know, Madball is better than they were at the start. That's yeah. for sure. I mean, they're like a world-class fucking hardcore band. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, them and sick of it all. They're like the two who just like, I honestly believe that when they're 70, they can still play this way. I think some bands as well, like, Take your Black Sabbath. They did the reunion. They did a second reunion, and then they came out with an album, which was all right. And then um, now they're packed in. I think they could have just gone. You know what? We'll just be a studio band because I could have taken more of that new album. It wasn't amazing. Yeah, but... I mean, it, it definitely wasn't bad. It was a little. It was a little. Felt a little contrived, yep. you know, um, and a little too much production value. I wish they would have gone like listened to some like Stoner records and went yep. that direction a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of the like the CRISPR production. But um, but yeah, I mean, considering how long it's been and this, that and the other thing, I mean, they fucking made a pretty good album. Yeah, man. And the new Aussie record is pretty fucking good as well. Yeah. If, yeah. If you, I think the, metabol- the, the metabolism of bands these days is different anyway. I was saying earlier about Bloody Kisses is kind of a product unto itself. It's got to start a middle and an end. I think these days to keep the attention of everyone, it's got to be four EPs a year. And you've got to just keep churning it out and you can't really, you can't raise the stakes too high on well, your production the, the, for that reason. Well, the, the thing is, too, that it, it all moves so quickly now, right? Yeah. So the, the trends um, in sound and production and songs and style, it moves really, really fast. Mm. So the thing is, like to do an album every two, three, four years a lot of shit's happened in between, you know? Yeah. And so the EP idea is really smart. It's like hip hop, you know, like they put out singles Mm -hmm. because like, you know, if, if Trump does something fucked up, you want to write a song about it and get it out in a couple of weeks, you know, distracts back and forth. Yeah. So it's the same thing to me with like the EP idea idea. It's like, you know, if, if you've got something in you, get the four songs out, get the three songs out, you know? And, yeah. and just keep it moving, like as opposed to like you don't need the big album event anymore, you know. Exactly. Yeah, I don't. Wanna, I don't want to see another twelve-minute version of Wheels of Steel by Saxon at a festival. Right. I want them like, to, who, want them to sit at home and yeah. bang out, <laughs> just bang out some some albums and make money on that. And it's like I'm perfectly happy listening to the original Wheels of Steel. I don't need. Yeah. I don't need new Saxon. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> I love Saxon. I don't need two thousand. Oh God, yeah. But. 2020 Saxon, I don't need. <laughs> became, the, this is this is the, the institution example though. Like Slayer could have done without recording any new albums from 1990. They still would have gone out on tour and done a cycle, and they still would have made money, and that would have been great. Right, but, but it, the whole thing with them is because they became such a business, yep. is they actually needed the recording advance to start up tour stuff. You know. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. It was a cash yeah, so, flow. So it's a little different. Like Dynamic. because for right. them, they're not Metallica. Metallica's banked all their money. It's fucking. You know, they're just super wealthy, can do whatever they want, whenever they mm. want. They can they can do they can stop doing what they're doing if they want, you know, 
Yeah. Um, Slayer still like I'm listen, they all were, were well off enough, but they're not the like millions and millions in the bank guys, you know? Yeah. Uh, maybe Mary, maybe a little bit for Carrie and Tom, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's it, you know? And the other guys, um, you know, they had to work. Yeah. You know, so they needed that like whatever they got per album, you mm. know, to to sort of start, you know, a tour cycle or merch or whatever they had to do mm. um you know whereas like the other you know metallica doesn't need the income at all you know no. they're no. not going to be they're not going to be the covid uh live guinea pigs trust me they're <laughs> going to wait and see if everybody else gets sick and then they'll go out you know i didn't want to i didn't want to ask anything about covid cause i kind of wanted to make this interview like a timeless thing without much context but what do you reckon is going to happen with venues and, and touring and how when do you think we'll come back this is what october 2020 at the minute we're speaking yeah i think it's i think it's really rough and i think it's it's a uh, a very it's very much a moving target here yep. because i think ultimately venues for music are so fucking low on the priority list yep. of getting it back up and running that that's really part of the problem, you know? We had a, a not, not a riot, what's the word, protest in Manchester. Um, all crew people who obviously have been completely yeah. ignored in, in the, the trickle down of all the grants and all the things for the arts. Nothing's come to the actual crew companies. Uh, and there's some guys I've worked for who I've seen all of their warehouse assets all online. And we're talking millions and millions and millions of pounds of gear. And it's yeah. all just for the highest bidder. So yeah, even if yeah. Iron Maiden rolled out, in fact, Iron Maiden will have everything in-house. I'm not, this a bad example. Let's say uh, Anthrax rolled out with a tour in 2021 and everything's great. It's, there's a fat chance that the people they used to use are no longer there. Yeah, right. That's right. There's really I no mean, venues. I just think, I just think it's, uh, it's, it's going to be last, you know? I think yep. that when things start to quote unquote normalize um which listen i do think it's gotten back not to normal but like to a better place of the last couple of months than it was you know the prior five mm. um i think you know we're starting to learn that we have to live with it as opposed to it's just going to go away totally you know um no vaccine no anything is just going to make it go away the flu never went away you no. know we just learned how to live with it and not die from it. You know, um, that's really what's going to happen. Like don't overload the, the medical system and don't die, you know, like that's, yeah. that's the priority. So think, yeah. until, until people are comfortable being able to, to do that with ease, um, you know, I, I think we're in trouble and I'm not so sure that 2021 is going to be yeah. any better, yeah. but I do think that Europe and England are going to have a bit of an advantage because of the outdoor festivals. Um, because I do see mm. that that could come back sooner than the indoor shows. Um, yeah. Because it's I mean, safer. The, the, the people I work for, they're, they are a, a weekly outdoor festival. And there are a few proposals as to how to make it work. Um, but the red tape comes from up top. Even if you have the best idea in the world, it, you, you're only as quick as your slowest component which is those guys. <laughs> yeah. Which, and again, it's, it's, they're in no rush to get this stuff back. You no, know? No. It's restaurants, all that stuff. That's all mm -hmm. going to sports. It's all going to be first. You know, you will see what, what, what town do you live in? in uh, I live between Leeds and York. So old York. <laughs> okay. So Leeds is in the premier league now, you know, you'll see fans yep. at a Leeds <laughs> yeah. at a Leeds match, you know, um, 
before you're going to see uh, fucking concerts. You know? Yeah, we had a um, the council actually tr- appealed to the government for near to full lockdown rules because obviously Leeds are back in the Premiership, so there's a lot more parties happening in town. Yep, that's right. Yep. And it's it's there's very little you can do. It's funny because um, the only reason I know much about Leeds is because there was that documentary. But also, um, <laughs> Russell Crowe, I mean, I've yeah. been to, I've been to Leeds, but like as far as the football team. But uh, Jack Harrison, um, he actually played for the same club my daughter plays for. Oh, really? Yeah. So my daughter wow. plays like, you know, U13 girls. But his his entire youth career was with the same club here in New no York. No way. That's crazy. That's and crazy. it was so funny because at first everybody thought he was American, you know, because why would he come from England to play football in America, mm. you know, and then go back to England? But, you know. He wound up staying here and he played for, you know, for NYCFC, which is, you know, Manchester City's American club, basically. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, he was remained with Man City and then they put him on loan to Leeds and he just stayed there. It's quite lucrative, actually, going over to the States as a as a footballer um, and teaching in your junior career. Oh, for sure. That, There's a lot of English coaches here. Lots yeah. of English yeah. coaches here. Um my daughter's right now is an American woman, but she played, you know, division one college and semi pro and yeah. all that stuff. And, and, you know, but they're in the club. There's tons of English and South American coaches. Yeah. Yeah. I keep running into Marco uh, Bielsa. He's, he's my running route when I go for a run is on the way to the Leeds training ground. So I keep seeing him on the phone looking at uh, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, they're interesting. They, they're not getting relegated. I'll tell you that they're going to, they're yeah. winning games. It's been a long, long haul since that big gamble, what, early 2000s when they lost 60 million quid and then yeah. had to sell all the players, you know. So it's been, been waiting well, a I long time. That. Have you ever seen that Sunderland documentary? Um, the, pre- the, the prelude to the Leeds one. It, yeah, the one that was on Netflix. I haven't seen it. I definitely want to see it. It's actually quite, it, it's quite good. And I don't give a shit about Sunderland, you know. It's like yeah. <laughs> whatever. But, like, it, it's interesting to see what relegation does to a fucking not just a club but a town to a a whole town yeah yeah you can feel it (laughs) in the mood we don't have that here like that you know the the closest we had is you know the brooklyn dodgers was a baseball team here like new york had three baseball teams at one point Uh, but you know in the 50s and 60s um and so you know brooklyn was kind of its own entity in new york it always has been and so when the brooklyn dodgers left to become the la dodgers that was the closest I think America's really had, um, you know, to, to something like that, you know, where like a club could, you know, could completely fold and yep. like, the town would be affected, you know, God, yeah. um, if the club has to go out of business, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's another series on, I don't know if it was Hulu or Netflix called Losers. Right. I know and what you mean. I think it's Netflix. And there's, and, yeah. And there's a, a whole segment on this football club down in the southwest of England that I can't even, it begins with a Q, I think, the town uh, name. Not Quimby. It's like, it's something oh, weird. Um, it's like a strange name. I'm going to find it for you right now. I'm going to kick myself when I hear it. I know it. Yeah, so regardless, it's worth a, it's worth a watch if you like football at all. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so they were in the fourth tier of professional English football, right? And mm. so they got relegated from that. So now wow. they're in the fifth tier, right? So essentially, 
if you come in last, the club goes out of business. Yeah. Like it doesn't, there's no relegation anymore. You're done. There is no club. Yeah. So basically, um, they are in, they're tied for the final spot on the last game of the year. Right. <laughs> and they're playing at home and the entire town is anticipating that they're going to lose mm. and there's going to be no more club. They're done. Like it's That's over. It. Nobody has jobs. There's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing to do on the weekend. It's over, you know? And so they, long story short, they're losing two zip at the half. They score a goal, but the fans are getting really restless and they're throwing shit on the pitch and whatever. Oh, no. So the so the police have to come and bring dogs out onto the pitch, like to the, around the perimeter of the pitch. So there's ten minutes left, and they're down a goal, like a goal away from their fucking. Now they can have a draw. Devastation. They can have a draw. They oh right, okay, yeah, yeah. They only needed one more goal. So yeah. it's ten minutes left, and their star player goes to pick up a ball for a throw-in on the touchline. Mm-hmm. And gets bitten by one of the dogs. Oh, no. <laughs> and so he's bitten on the thigh by one of the dogs. Yeah. And he's down on the ground that looks like, forget, like he can't play the rest of the match. Like he's going yeah. to the hospital, you know? Yeah. And so they patch him up. They get him back on the pitch. They have four minutes of added time now. Right. Okay. After being down for 10 minutes, they only had four minutes. And with one minute left in extra time, he scores the tying goal. Excellent. It's the sickest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> and then la- later they bring him to meet the dog, you know, like all this stuff. Like he, they, they, so they interview the cop who was watching the dog. You know, he still knows the dog. They bring the player to meet the dog. It's, it's insane. <laughs> I look, there's nothing quite like that kind of story, though, even even if it's like the stakes are lower and it's say Leeds last season towards the end when we were we we're about to go up, it was still like you're on the edge of your seat the entire way through. But to get bitten by a dog along the way, <laughs> like during a match, talkie like the most the most crucial match of your career. Yep, yep, yeah. And you know your thigh gets taken out by a fucking German Shepherd. You were you were thinking talkie United? Oh my, uh, yeah, that may have been it. Yeah, T O R Q U A Y. Yes, yeah. that's it. That's it. That's Sm- it. Small fishing town. In, I'm not fishing town. Just small, like a seaside town in Cornwall. They Very said nice. It, it's actually like you know, like a beautiful town. Yeah, the entire part of the country is really nice. Yeah, because they were ranting and raving about how beautiful it's a big vacation town, and you know that. Yeah, that, that, And that's the that's the football club that's right in the middle of it. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into that. All right, dude. I'm, not only have I taken up nearly two hours of your life. Um, <laughs> But I'm actually about to go in and record my actual podcast <laughs> with, yeah. with, with co-host. So this is my last question, and I'm glad yeah. we got through. We got through every single question, so thanks very much for that. Oh, no problem. Um, as you might have gathered, I'm more of a metal guy than a hardcore guy. So lay on me some entry-level hardcore albums to get into. Oh, I mean, as far as top ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, which is the most accessible. Yeah, there's a few that you know are musts, right? So. It really, for me, very much so starts with Discharge, Hear Nothing, See Nothing, Say Nothing. So, right. you know, call it hardcore, call it UK82, call it DB, whatever you want to call it. Um, massively 
influential, you know, um, mm-hmm. on so much of what happened in the UK and also America, um, because, you know, those records were able to be imported here and they toured here, you know, so yeah. they were, they were a tangible band. And that album to me is like the blueprint for so much hardcore, right? Sweet. And then you have Agnostic Front, Victim in Pain, um, yep. just absolutely, as far as New York hardcore goes, that's the blueprint, that's the sound mm. that everybody tried to emulate before they went and became sort of a crossover band. You know, that's like the one. Um, certainly the Bad Brains Roar cassette. Um, so, you know, what was ultimately their first album um, that was released on, on cassette, you know, for the first time. Um, that, you know, that AF discharge negative approach, probably their, their first seven inch, uh, their -hmm. first album too, but definitely their first seven inches is an album that I think, uh, you know, just kind of influenced, it's amazing and just influenced, you know, so many, you know, then you got the misfits and suicidal (laughs) and minor threat. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then... The list goes on, I take it. <laughs> yeah, Cro-Mags and Sick of It All. And, you know, I was trying to give you some of the early ones, obviously. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, to I've me... I've like, all of them. Yeah, like somewhere between Discharge and Misfits Walk Among Us and Victim in Pain and yeah. Minor Threat, you know, Negative Approach is probably my taste in hardcore, you know? Okay, okay. I'll definitely dive in and try like, and... I, I, I like... I like the crossover stuff too, but I also I like uh, hardcore that still sounds like punk, you know. Yeah, totally, totally. No, that's awesome. But you've been an absolutely uh, indispensable resource in my hunt for connecting the dots on this fucking <laughs> this fucking no, thing. Which... my pleasure. It, it, it was fun. <laughs> Is there anyone else I should be reaching out to who might be interested in telling me some stories? Yeah, I think Jeff Packman you should talk to for sure. Yeah, I've got um, his name again. Now. He's on he's on Facebook. You can find him. Cool, cool, uh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I think uh, I think he's a good one. Yeah, I'll definitely reach out. I'll definitely reach out. Right, I'm going to send you um, a Red Letter Media episode about uh, Declan Danzig. Oh, yeah, yeah, I want to see that. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you that, and I'll um, if I get any good pictures of Marco Bielsa on my next run, I'll definitely... Uh... <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Tell, it, tell him I said it, hi, Coach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, is this okay to go out on, uh, say, the YouTubes on the podcast and stuff like that? Oh, There's nothing yeah, you... Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, we didn't really get into anything contentious that we need to edit out, so that's pretty cool. Oh, I, w- I wouldn't care if we did. <laughs> uh, last thing, am I okay to follow up uh, with some questions uh, via email? The thing I'm discovering is, as I get further down this rabbit hole, I'm finding out more things that I could have mentioned before. That's the yeah, sign. No yeah, no problem at all. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for your time, and if you're ever in old York, I owe you one. Come on, I'll take you.